Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. It is Wednesday, it is the 10th of the 11th. I'm unaware if there is anything today we should commemorate or not, other than, I suppose, our own continued existence on this rock. Michael, how have you been? I've been okay. Um, it's the day before the 11th of November, so it's the day before the Armistice Day. It just, this is the day that you, you know, when you read the, and he was shot on the Marne on the 10th of uh, November. He's one of those, you know, he got through four years in the sun and died the day before Armistice Day. But other than that, I can't think of any reason why we should remember the 10th of November. Speaking of people who are having bad day, I don't know if you've been following the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in America, Michael? I will confess, Gary, I have not. So if you remember, Rittenhouse was the guy, he killed two people, shot another. Um, It was during riots in Kenosha. You may recall, Michael, them being mostly peaceful. The mostly peaceful rights in Kenosha, yes. His trial is on today and he has been, it's it's obviously very political. But speaking of people who have had bad days, I believe it was yesterday or it could have been two days ago at this point, the prosecution had on one of the chaps that Rittenhouse shot. Oh. And during his, you know, he gave his, his spiel and then he was cross-examined by Rittenhouse's uh, defence team. And during that, cross-examination, he admitted that Rittenhouse only shot him after he took his hands down and pointed a firearm at him. (laughs) The video of this is being broadcast, and all you can see is the prosecutor leaning down with his hands over his face, as this is said, just staring (laughs) into the table. Because Rittenhouse's defence is self-defence. Yeah. And I suppose there are parts of the world, Gary, where pointing a fire a firearm, yes, could be regarded as a threat. Yeah. Now, the situation, I mean, by that point, I think at least one person was already dead, possibly two. So, I mean, you could make the argument that it was justified to point a handgun at him or whatever it was he had. But it um, it certainly doesn't help. And yesterday they had in a journalist, a local journalist, a photojournalist. And it came up, the prosecution, no, the prosecution witness got very aggressive with him. But it came out during that uh, witness's speaking time that the prosecution had, um, he didn't say they requested that he amend his statement to police, but he said that he was asked um, if there was anything he could add to his statement to police. And when he said, no, I don't think it would be fair to do so because I now know things I didn't know then. He says that the prosecutor yelled at him, whose side are you on? <laughs> yeah. So it's like watching the um, the trials that came off the George Floyd trial, except this time it's the defense that's competent. I can't imagine there have been other examples where the police department shat so liberally over the police person. That that in this case, I mean, normally they're there, they're there to keep to to try and protect or defend the rights of the the police people involved, unless there's some, some kind of egregious corruption going on or something. But in this case, they were so hot for this guy's conviction, it was patent. But I'm, I'm just wondering, in the basis of all the talk that was around the possible consequences of this Floyd case. In the case, this case, the Richard case, was very, very widely uh, discussed and videotaped at the time. If he were to get off, I wonder what 
is there any sense in the reporting that this might be problematic? Yeah, there is. What's also been quite interesting is looking at the reporting of it. You can actually see clear political divides in American media. Because I saw mainstream publications just not mention that any of that happened. And instead say things like, well, well, that witness feared for his life when he approached Rittenhouse. <laughs> Even with, as he pointed the gun at him. Well, quick, you know, and he, and he made, I mean, no, no. It's, not, it's not impossible that you can point a gun at somebody and still fear for your life. Anyway, so that is, uh, that is just something to keep an eye on if you're interested in court goings. It has so far been a fiasco. Uh, and if it continues at that speed, God knows what entertaining things will happen. But that was just a short opening. The thing I wanted to um, open the show with, Michael, was a congratulations to a group that we don't congratulate often enough. And I should have done this months ago, and I must admit I missed it. What was that? Well, the journal has been recertified as a fact checker by the International Fact Checkers Network. But not only that, Michael, the assessor of the IFCN said that the fact journal fact check could be a model in all areas for other sites wishing to become verified signatories of the ISCN. I have so much more respect now for the journal and I have so much more respect now for all those people slaving away at the journal to make sure that everything in the journal is factually correct and accurate. And from now on, I should be using the journal as my sole source of news. Mm. Do you have slightly less for the IFCN? I have none. <laughs> the IFCN is a highly respected authority, Michael, that was unable to give me a straight answer any time I've ever talked to them. It's highly respected to the journal, I believe, anyway. Well, it's highly respected to Facebook, who you must be verified for the IFCN to be recognised as a journal, or sorry, as a Facebook fact checker, which the journal does and receives money for. But more importantly, has the ability to restrict and remove material from Facebook that it disagrees with. As long as, of course, that material is, is you know, misleading in some way, Michael, of course. We're not suggesting that the journal would simply target material as if it was some sort of weapon. That's a ridiculous and scandalous slur that we would never stand over. Par and paranoid, Gary. Paranoid. And ty typical of the certain kind of, let's face it, paranoid delusional thinking that you find on the far right all over Ireland. And outside. Now, there was, there was something, Michael, which made me a little bit confused in the assessment. Confused, Gary? You, Gary? Surely not, Gary. Yeah, it, it was criteria 1.6. Does your organisation receive funding from local or foreign state or political sources? And the journal said that wasn't applicable. And the assessor said, not applicable, see answer above. Which was the journal saying, it's not applicable. Not applicable. It may come as a surprise to some of you that the journal receives substantial funding from the EU. I believe it's in the region of several hundred thousand euro, which is a decent chunk of change if you're an online media source. Now, the journal is saying that the journal fact check is an organisation within the journal and the journal receives the money from the EU and that doesn't go to the journal fact check. Now, it doesn't look like the journal fact check is recognized, is registered as a separate company. It looks like it's all under the same company because where they list their company registration details on the information about the fact check, they don't list any, uh, the reference number is exactly the same. So, but I imagine, Michael, there's Chinese walls to ensure that that money doesn't go into fact checking. 
But I will say that did make it a little bit difficult when I went back through the Good Informations archive. Sorry, can we just sorry, can we just take a moment out to enjoy the title of the program, the Good Information Program? I mean, let you're sitting down, you you think, okay, let's 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 think up of a title. Could you have come up with a title which was at the same time more anodyne and yet more dystopian than the Good Information Project? I, I actually really like the name because every time I hear it, I just think of the phrase accidentally dystopian. <laughs> I don't know why it keep to me. There's always there's also an element of a of a Chinese restaurant to it. Mm. Where are you going? I go to the Good Information. They do fantastic dim sum. It does actually sound maybe a Thai place? <laughs> but I mean, if you're going to come up with something like this and you can't escape sort of some vague shadow of either Brave New World or 1984 in the then go for something so radically bureaucratic and boring. That it would at least be, it will be her, it'll be safe. Like the union's second stage project towards increased and enhanced subsidiarity in news gathering. And something that will bore people to death, but at least won't frighten them. <laughs> I'm sorry, the good information project. <laughs> yeah. I, I legitimately wonder if there is a Chinese program with the same thing. And people will say, well, you may have seen it claimed that our leaders have taken bribed. But if you look at the Good Information Project, you'll see that that was clearly a lie. Are you saying that the, sorry, just, they, they get money, the journal gets money from the EU because it's part of the Good Information Project. Now, and the journal fact-checking is an integral part of the journal. But they say it's, it's split off from the normal um, newsroom. Okay, for example, is the money fungible? That's the real question. So, does any of the money that comes in one side go towards pay for anything on the other side? Oh, yes. Yeah, no, no. The, the, the journals say that the journal fact-check is funded by the journal. Which is funded by the EU. Well, yes. So, insofar as A is equal to B and B is equal to C, isn't A equal to C? Well, I'm sure they would say, Michael, no, that money is ring-fenced and absolutely not. Of course, if any of that money went to things like, you know, wages... Uh, well, then that would be a very difficult thing to split, unless you're having your own people bill you. Uh, well, you could do, but it would still be the same money. But anyway, I had a little bit of a look at the Good Informations Project. And you see, the journal do fact checks, and they do things called fact fines. And these are mentioned in the IFCN uh, applications. They have been for years. I have been unable to ever find any description of what the difference is between these things. But as they're mentioned in the the application for the IFCN, I'm just going to assume they all come under the fact check label, which is backed up by the fact that if you go to the journal's fact check section, you find things called fact finds. And Michael, here's what I found. On April the 15th, the journal published something they have tagged as a fact find, which says government says working will never be the same again. Here is its plan for what it will look like, the good information project. So it looks like at least one thing has been published in the journal's fact-checking archive that came from EU funding. Now, the IFCN seems to have missed that one. But you're assuming that the two things are mutually exclusive, that you can't have something which comes from the Good Information Project, which is also fact-checked. Well, you see, Michael, I think if you tell your assessment that you receive no funding from foreign state or political sources, 
and you're receiving money from the EU and any of that work makes its way into the fact-checking? Well, I think that could be construed as an issue. The IFCN won't construe it as an issue because, as we've seen in previous dealing with the IFCN, an issue is anything which would cause embarrassment for the IFCN. I remember the last time we were having fun, or more specifically, you were having some fun for yourself, trying to get them to answer questions regarding whether this was a... It was this was such as that it should and this was a was b and b was a and whatever and what could you get a definition of this and what if this was this why wasn't this that and the first of all the implacable response of oh, well, <laughs> we were not going to comment and then if we are going to comment we're just going to deny it it was it really was that alice in wonderland time isn't it humpty dumpty who says uh that's not what i mean whatever i mean Whatever I mean is whatever I, I want it to mean. So I may, have, I may have never mentioned this before, but obviously I wrote an article saying that only a, about a third of the journal's fact-checks over a certain period actually meet the criteria to be considered fact-checking. The director of the IFCN, when I asked him about it, and I mean I, like I drilled into this with this guy, it was like talking to a wall, but eventually said if there was no verdict, it wasn't a fact-check. That led to only one-third of these are being a fact-check. Now, after I published the piece, he reached back out to me. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this. He said, I, wa- I need to share with you that it was disappointing to see that you were misrepresenting my reply to you in your first article. Journal.ie's article, regardless of being a ver- fact-check or not, can use verdicts at their discretion and any practice around using fact-checks do not constitute any violation against IFCN's Code of Principles. That particular article article being a fact check is in compliance with IFCN's code of principles regardless of using a verdict not now I've read the IFCN's code of principles I would say more than any man living that's horseshit but I said of course Michael there's always the possibility you're wrong so I wrote to him and, and said I would have hate to have misrepresented you but I don't believe I had here is the exact quote you told me. If what I wrote was a rep- misrepresentation, I'd be happy to go back and clarify or correct the article. But is this what you're actually saying? Your position is that it's a fact check. What you're saying now is in direct contradiction of what you told me earlier. What did you mean in your original response? More so, and then I pointed out that his new position was actually at variance with Article 4 of their own principles. The question was that they, the journal had given a methodology and they deviated from it. If the journal hadn't given that methodology, it wouldn't have been a problem. And Michael, it turns out the question, you know, what exactly did you mean, is a very difficult one to answer, because I never got that back. Silence came back the response. And my reading of it was that, um, you know what, I can't actually give my reading of it due to Ireland's strict, de- uh, strict defamation laws. But anyway, I had a particular reading of it. But I just wanted to congratulate the journal on getting... Uh, on getting accredited again. It's a very big part of their work. And it's important, Michael, let nothing ever go wrong with it. So it's good to see them continue uh, with the high standards they have demonstrated up to this point. Are they the only fact-checkers we have in Ireland? They are. Oh. On the subject of fact-checking and misinformation, readers of GRIP may have noticed that there have been a number of stories about Kinzen, the media startup which the Department of Health hired to help it combat COVID-19 misinformation over the last couple of days. We are currently debating, and I hope we do it, at releasing uh, every disinformation digest that Kinzen prepared for the Department of Health over the last five months. 
there's some really interesting stuff in there. And I mean, it's interesting what they find, but it's also interesting what they miss, Michael. So here we're talking about articles or or information that would have been tagged as disinformation by Kinzen that other people, maybe other disinterested uh, authorities or sources, would not have regarded as being on the face of it disinformation. And then other examples of fairly egregious forms of disinformation that just seem to f go through the, the the net in such a fashion, Gary, that made it difficult to countenance the idea that this was actually a human monitored process rather than simply a kind of a generalized algorithm trawler throw the net out and see what we catch. Yeah, it's difficult to tell. There was definitely a broad net thrown. But what I found interesting was um, when you go through the last week they were working for the department, Michael. Yes. They catch a story from John McGurk complaining about a, um, a Gripped.ie story being flagged and the HSE is part in it. They catch a story later in the week about Michael McNamara responding to a story about the HSE uh, reporting content to social media. But they absolutely missed the story I wrote, which is what Michael McNamara is responding to, in which I discussed how totally out of control that program had gotten and the part Kinzen played in it. That's curious. That is curious, yeah. That, I, Michael, I, looking at the online metrics, that story did, as the kids would say, numbers. <laughs> it's just like... You've got the story about the reaction to it. You've got the story about the reaction to the reaction to it. But you don't have the story. It just slipped by it. Out and away. Free as a bird. But you know, this that's modern disinformation, I suppose. Well, it's all very complicated and scientific and computers and numbers. It's, it's beyond the likes of us to be able to understand these sophisticated things. I'm sure there was no bad intentions or bad actions involved in it. It was just one of those things. Which just happened to be a story about Kinzen. Yeah, yeah. It is a shame they missed that story, though, because I think that would have led to some interesting discussions. In Kinzen? In the department and uh, between the department <laughs> and Kinzen. I asked the department, I FOI'd all conversations between the department and Kinzen, and I got a lot of stuff from the department. I got it late, but I got it. But it's interesting what isn't there, Michael, because oddly enough, all of the um, discussions you would have expected there to be at the end of a working relationship, they're not there. What kind of discussions do you... Oh, you know, like, it's been lovely working with you. Uh, we hope to talk to you later. <laughs> you mean the friendly, warm handshake of two people who've worked together and worked well and happily? Or, you know, Kinzen asking, can we continue our working relationship now that it's come to this expected end? We look forward in the future to be able to be of service in similar uh, situations or maybe even other uh, yet undiscovered opportunities where we can be of help and service to the state and to the department. But there was none of this forward-looking conversation. None of them, just none of them. Uh, and nor were they on the schedule of records, which for those who don't know, when you send in an FOI, it's best practice, they don't always do this, to give you a list of all the documents they considered giving to you and the ones they made the decision on. So it should contain all relevant documentation, either to tell you you have it or you don't. And the schedule doesn't have any mention of any documents of those sorts. Also, it mentions that Kinzen were working for the department in 2020, before anyone thought they were working for the department 
And yet those documents didn't make their way to me. And I have asked the department, you know, here there's references in these documents to other documents I haven't got. Why haven't I got them? But you know, Michael, I just haven't heard back yet. Ah, well, time, time, Gary. It's a busy time. It's a busy... These things happen. Things are lost. I particularly liked the uh, the email thread I got back, where the last email was just, here's everything I could find. Is this enough for the FOI? <laughs> Will this do you? Yeah. <laughs> now, was that question directed at you or somebody internal in the department? That was directed at someone else in the department. <laughs> uh, will this do, do you think? I can't find anything else. This is, to be honest now, to be fair, there is a, a note of honesty about that. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, this is everything I could find. I hope this is okay, question mark. I hope I don't have to go back and look again because it really is a pain in the hole. But uh, I'm hoping that we will have those up this week. Uh, the, the, strangely, the, the problem with it is that um, there may be defamatory material inside it. So we have to go through everything. And we're like, well, well they call this person a conspiracy theory. Is that a, a theorist or a well-known liar? Is that a problem for us? Because you would you would be republishing the defamation. Now, I suspect in most of those cases, the people involved wouldn't care because in publishing it, we would be informing them that yes. you know, the state paid money to call them a liar. This is Ireland. You can never be too careful. I did like, uh, I must say, I did like Donnelly's little trick because he responded to a PQ about Kinzen and he gave answers that were technically correct, but not actually entirely truthful. Are you saying like maybe not really in the spirit of transparency, but rather in the spirit of technically true but not actually informative he was asked how much they had paid kinzen and he gave a response that was technically correct but didn't note that that didn't include the final invoice which the department already had hadn't paid yet so technically had not but knew it had to be uh yes there's some very interesting stuff there most of it is, is in the stories there's also some mention of getting stories taken down stuff like that stuff that indicates they were involved with what we said they were involved in but we will uh, as i said hopefully we'll have those up this week in which case i'm sure people will very much enjoy going through them yes or he still hasn't mentioned by the way michael the uh, co-founder of extinction rebellion coming around and saying that the reality of climate change was seeing your mother gang raped on a table i can't I can't get my head around this at all. We are 100% happy and sure that the author of that particular piece of lurid dystopian literature was, in fact, that gentleman. Yeah, I I didn't think that was the case, but I managed to find a link to it on Extinction Rebellion UK's uh, official social media. And it was on a video of that founder uh, talking about uh, the subject. Because, I mean, state the bleeding obvious, it's beyond lurid. It is kind of a bit creepy and worrying, <laughs> as is well. If you're talking about simply a picture inside the his uh, his world view, shall we say? But the fact that they are so studiously annoying a group which is getting a serious amount of column inches, and something which is as juicy a story as this, and as bizarre. And let's face it, stories sometimes. Okay, they can be important, they can be, and they can still be dull. They can be all sorts of things. But what this is, this is the Grand Guignol. This is the end of the pier freak show kind of stuff. This is, 
this is clickbait, Gary, of the highest order. I mean, you could throw out a, a dozen quotes from this in your lead up to it that would have people clicking wildly to see what the hell this is about. And nobody seems to be bothered making it more widely available, making it more widely known. It's a, it's an oddity. Did we provide a link to the people? I mean, I sent John Williams, who heads up news on RT8. I mean, maybe I need to send him another one. I mean, The Guardian covered this, Michael. Yeah. I am. Um, but the, yeah. is The Guardian signed up to the same advocacy group as the RTE? They helped found it. And yes, they covered this, but RTE didn't. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they wrote about it and they gave the quote about the, uh, the gang rape. And then they uh, said, it's difficult to know what such nihilistic despair is supposed to achieve or how imagining the world as a Mad Max film will make people more willing to take action. <laughs> I think that's a reasonable observation. Very much of the Guardian tradition. Quite how this is supposed to help, we don't know. It was actually interesting. The Irish Times mentioned it. Well, it mentioned it on passing, really. I mean, that's... Yeah, so uh, Finn McRedmond wrote an article uh, called No End in Sight to the New Age of Anxiety. I'll put a link to it below. And she mentioned enough about it that it was clear she had read this piece. But she just mentioned it in passing. And Michael, I would be very interested to know how much found itself left on the edit room floor. Because <laughs> I would suspect if you are an opinion journalist and you're going to write about this, you're going to quote the gang rape part. Or the, you know, thousands of million of young people dying and the starving. You're going to quote those parts. They're just good copy. The cigarette burning. Yeah, yeah, being blinded by cigarettes. Um, You're going to do that. So considering that they didn't, I would imagine someone gave that the snip. Well, it's a family newspaper, Gary, in fairness. <laughs> you know. I can, every time I mention this story, all I can imagine is one of Grip's editors going... Gary, please, God, stop saying the words gang rape. It's not what you want over your hard-boiled egg of a morning. But no, it's it's like it, it has been reported. It's just not. I mean, do we want to give the Irish Times partial credit? Oh, if we can give the Irish Times credit, I always say give them credit. It shows how magnanimous and open-hearted we are. But when I said, uh, have we provided... I know, yes, you, you provided a link to the gentleman or to but have we provided a link to, the, to our own readers, shall we say? A link for what, sorry? To the... To the article, to the essay. I actually don't know if I put one in the piece I put up on it. If you do, I mean, and, and this is not a joke, you have to put a trigger warning. I think on the article I wrote about it, I didn't put a direct link. But on the podcast that we put up where we talked about it, I believe there is a direct link in the um, podcast notes section. If people want to mosey on over to that and see exactly what's ticking. Because it is, I know it sounds like we're making a lot out of it, but it really it is. It is all of that. It is worth. It is worth taking ten minutes to read just to think. Oh my good God! Anyway, have you enjoyed the uh, recent discussion of transport systems, Michael? No, I've been involved in a couple of discussions about various transport systems. So, are we, are we talking about the uh, the Irish transport systems, or are we talking about the failure of the Trans Europeans, or what, which ones are we talking about here? So, we will be talking about the the newly released plans for transport in Dublin. Are the absence of transport in Dublin? No, Michael. 2030 to 2041 is going to be a very busy period when presumably everyone important at this point will be dead and therefore can't be blamed for it. I don't know, there's just something about the phrase in 2040 which makes it seem an awfully long time away. And yet, hopefully, um, 
most of us will actually still be alive. 19 years. When was the... F can you remember? It's probably it's not a fair question because I should remember better than you. The first time we were told that we were going to have a rail connection built from uh, North Dom out to the airport. Uh, a long time ago. Michael, I, I, I lived in Navin for a good while. So let me tell you, the, the idea of a train being promised is not new to me. Oh God! Yeah, the Navin train. That's like that's one of those. That's like uh, that's like a Christa Berg song that went on for so long, didn't it? But did they? Ha but they got they got a train in the end, didn't they? Isn't there a train to Navin now? No, God no, no, no. But I'm sure I saw a firm commitment to a train to Navin made only five or six, seven years ago, and this time it was definitely really, really, absolutely happening. So there's still no train to Navin. No, but to to really rub salt in the wounds, there is a freight train. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. I mean, there must there is a train. Is there there is a train station in Navin? There is a, a a train line. I mean, Navin must be one of the biggest towns in Ireland, if not the biggest town in Ireland without a train station. Uh, I don't actually know. There might be an old disused train station, but I'm not familiar with one from the town. But yes, look, it as as I may as I put it on Twitter, we are being asked to trust the people who can't build a tram, or sorry, a metro, in less than forty years can handle fundamental change in our lifestyle and the spending of hundreds of billions of euro related to environmental spending. Why do we think they can do this? Gary, is that not the same question we ask about everything? If you ask people, do you trust the competence of the people uh, that govern you? Do you think that they do a good job on any things that they already do jobs, whether it's education or health or transport or whatever? Generally speaking, people have a fairly low opinion of their competence and yes exactly the same people who don't think that they have any kind of cap capacity or competence they don't trust politicians and they don't trust the state and they don't trust civil servants or whatever exactly the same people are going to be perfectly willing to vote to give over lumps of power and massive amounts of taxed money to a people in order to achieve these great sort of pharaonic uh public works even though they're going to be executed and managed and projected by exactly the same politicians i this has been a mystery to me since i was a small child and this is probably why i am where i am on the political spectrum but it is a mystery and it, it, it has always been this way and it will always be this way what people manage to abstract they have a capacity to abstract a particular thing that they really want from their experience and say, okay, all the other stuff has really been badly managed and badly done and badly executed. It went over budget and it didn't work and whatever. But this will work. This will be good because for this one, we will get all the clever people and all the good people and all the efficient people that up to now we have never bothered using. Up to now, we've only used the shit people. This time, this time we're going to use the really good people, the clever people, the organized the conscientious people, and they will execute it, and it'll be fantastic. Now, where these people are, I don't know. I, maybe they keep them in a bunker underneath the county hall offices in Dublin. They've been waiting for this great day when they really, really needed all the good people. And now this is the day has come, and they're going to bring them out. But why we should have confidence, I don't know, in their capacity to do anything. I, I have a vague, vague notion that 2007, 2007 rather, we were supposed to have a train going to the airport and at this stage have we kind of decided we're never going to have a train to the airport yeah actually speaking of uh infrastructural projects daft have their new housing report out today came out this morning oh it's a, it's a joy to read yeah yeah um it's 
It's something. The basic gist of it is that in Dublin, for the first time ever, I think, I think they've gotten close before, but I don't think they've ever broken it before. There are now fewer than 1,000 homes available to rent. If you go outside Dublin, like in Limerick City, Michael, Limerick City, there are 11 homes to rent. 11. (laughs) 11. What is that going to have to do to the price? Like if you own one of those 11 homes... You know, I mean, I've I've heard of a seller's market before, Michael, but that's taken the piss. You know, Gary, it's almost as if a whole a series of policy choices were made over time, which people said would drive the small renter out of the market and further constrict the supply. At the same time, as a planning system with the support of many, many politicians, would consistently and persistently attack and refuse planning applications made by large-scale planners. And the thing is, Gary, if you ex- if you decide we don't want big, large-scale build-to-rent developments and we're going to take actions which are going to make life for the small one, two or three property renter and we're going to make that person basically want to get out of the market, it's hard to see what's going to be left over. It is actually quite interesting looking at some of the trend maps that Ronan Lyons. Ronan Lyons is a TCD economist who does the, he's DAF's economist. Like Limerick. In Limerick, in 2013, there were over 500 rental homes in um, Limerick. From that point, they've fallen and they have spikes pretty consistently. I assume there's something that happens on an annual basis that causes a lot of the houses to vacate themselves? Is there a big student population, maybe? Oh, there would be. I mean, you have UL and you have LIT and Mary Immaculate. You have these spikes in the middle of the year. Yes, a summer. So, yeah, that will all key together. And they are massive. But as you go along from 2011, the spikes start getting smaller and the stock consistently declines. By 2020, you're under 100 consistently. And now you're you're down to eleven. Limerick, by the way, has a population of around a hundred thousand people, and it has eleven. You know, if you're a if you're a a young woman or a young man who's you know planning on going to to UL or LIT for the first time, it's not good news, is it? I mean, we're basically saying the time has come for you, young man, to get a driving license and a car. Oh, but haven't we put the price of a a litre of petrol up to... I, I'm afraid that the report is actually incorrect. Oh! I have just searched on daft.ie for Limerick City rental properties. Not not homes, everything. Apartments, anything. Like a, a fucking bed sit. There are now nine properties to rent in Limerick City. Two have been taken since we went on air. 20% of the stock has gone. <laughs> There's been a run on the stock. <laughs> Look, these numbers don't seem real. How do you fuck this up so badly? Like, how do you have a city of 100,000 people with nine rental properties? It takes commitment. It takes uh, a, a fundamental understanding of how the property market works. And then you do everything to frustrate that. But most of all, it just it takes the long term view, Gary, that everything you do is long term. So you make sure that, OK, next year we're going to build no houses. And the year after that, we're going to build no houses. 
and the year after that we're going to build it. And any bastard wants to come along and build a house to rent, we're going to make sure that we're going to get him out of this business as quick as we can. We're going to punish those people trying to make their money out of people's need to be housed. The vultures, the disgusting types. It's it is tremendous. I mean, the numbers, by the way, for Cork are not a whole lot better. We were complaining for so long, Michael, about the cost of rental accommodation and how rent caps were going to drive people out of the market because they promote a series of maladaptive behaviour. And frankly, the Irish the Irish rental regulations are in a bizarre place where if you are a good tenant with a bad landlord or a good landlord with a bad tenant, you're going to get screwed. It's just a matter of time on either side of it. But if you're crap and you don't care, you can make quite a lot of money very easily. And, you know, we, we spent so long, Michael, complaining about the price, never thinking, what if there's just nowhere to rent? Well, in fairness, a lot of the part, a lot of the problem with the price was because there wasn't very much. Like, there are homes on this, on, on Daft.ie at the minute, like one of those nine rental properties, €4,500 a month. It's a four-bed house on the North Circular Road. A four-bed house for... It's not even detached, Michael. Hold on now. Is that in Limerick? That's in Limerick, yeah. Four and a half thousand a month for a four-bed house in Limerick. That's the kind of money you would have been shocked at if you'd been told it was in Kinsale or in Dawkey. That's incredible. Then again, four bedrooms. Presumably you can get at least two or three beds into a bedroom. You get bunk beds. I mean, pile up the students. Um, you could, you could, if there's a big garden, you know, it's always a help. You can get a couple of tents out there, maybe a nice shed. I just feel, Michael, that maybe instituting policy after policy designed to drive out small private landlords may in fact be backfiring. The perf, it, this, it, it used that awful cliche. The perfect storm has been generated, Gary, because as we were saying, not just that we have been driving out the small private landlord, but we have been consistently taking this position against we, I say we, uh, people involved in planning and politicians who are involved in lobbying against planning. The hostility, Gary, you've seen it again and again. How many times have we seen the headlines? We don't want these vulture fund driven monster developments. This is completely out of character with the area. This kind of development is this we had the case in Drumcondra. Remember the one in Drumcondra where they, they argued that by adding whatever it was, 1,600, 1600 uh, residential units to the area, it would actually cause rents in the area to go up rather than to go down because of maths in this weird, bizarre world inhabited by these people. But the very fact that they are these companies are not Irish and are large scale and building only to rent, they are now the objects of despite and consumably. So we're against them. We're against the small. There are those people, Gary, who say there are members of political parties on the left and not just the left, but shall we say the left, who are perfectly happy to do as much as they can to frustrate any kind of attempt to to actually to respond to the needs of this market through anything other than government intervention. Because this is the very best stick that they have to beat the present government when it comes to a general election. And also because there's an ideological com commitment there commit that ultimately the supply of housing should be something which is in the hands of the state rather than left to the private market. And therefore, they are perfectly willing to endure the short to medium term misery 
of citizens in order to achieve what they regard as their long-term goal. A long-term goal, which I would predict, Gary, I think you would agree with me, it will turn out that they will actually fail miserably to achieve. And we will, so we will have not just short to medium term, but we'll have long-term misery. And God knows how, do we, how long it will take us to get out of that. But we are doing everything we can as a, as a society at the moment. It feels like, at times anyway, we're doing everything we can just to make the problem worse. And we, refu we refuse to... Did you hear John Fitzgerald, uh, Garrett, Garrett Fitzgerald's son? He was on the radio the other day. He represented the ESRI talking about the proposals to introduce more rent controls. It's become a, it's a cliche of professional economics that they agree about almost nothing. But the one thing that the vast majority of economists left and right agree about is the inefficiency of rent controls. And they, he made a very important point on that, arguing against the politician who was in favour of rent controls and rent, the various re in, in, interventions in the market that they felt could be useful to control it. He said, the longer you leave these kinds of controls in, and it's not just price controls, but caps or tenancy agreements or lease lengths or whatever it is, the longer you leave them in court, the longer it takes the, for them to unwind. They don't work. They have never worked. Everybody involved with it knows they don't, but they do it because it's performative politics. And they can be seen to be the guys that are doing something to help the poor downtrodden student and poor family that's trying to, we're at least doing something. When in fact, what you're doing, and as Fitzgerald pointed out, is making it you, you, you're going to make it harder and harder and longer and longer for this system to unwind and you're going to make it worse and worse and more and more miserable but a friend of ours has often said that he will he doesn't believe there's such a thing as pluralism when it comes to media in this country until he's at a press conference one day and hears one of the journalists say but minister isn't there a market solution to this that would work better and of all of the areas of controversy that are happening around us, Gary, it seems to me that at least in this one, that we haven't, I have, well, I may have missed it. I have not yet heard a journalist from our state broadcaster push the point with any kind of vigor that maybe intervention is not the thing we should assume will work because it hasn't worked anywhere else in the world. And they must know that. It's the Irish way. Everyone is approves of the building of more houses, bar yeah, the Green Party, in general. But there's always a reason why they should never be built near you. And so politicians replicate that behaviour. Everyone talks about the importance of building more and the rent crisis and how it's having a negative effect on people. All of those things, homelessness, all of that. And then those same politicians will go... And they will speak against any new development in their area because the people in that area don't want it. So I think at this point, the correct political stance to take is just say you don't give a shit about the homeless crisis or rent costs or anything like that. Because when you actually look at people's specific behavior, they don't. There is always a reason not for it to be built there. And yeah, Michael, if you were to stand up and say, I actually just don't care about the homelessness crisis, that would be outrageous. That would, you know, that might actually cause you damage. But consistently, for years upon years, acting in a way that ensures that nothing is built in your area is seen as perfectly reasonable, perfectly respectable, and the sort of thing just done. But, you know, Michael, in a democracy, you get what you deserve. And this is what people want. 
and they have gotten it. That's the idea of democracy, Michael, that the people know what they want and that they should be given it good and hard. I will just say, before we uh, slip out, Michael, yeah. I set daft.ie to look at Limerick City and all locations within 20 kilometres of Limerick City. And that's probably, like, from Limerick City a quarter to, no, a third to half of the way to the to the eastern border, somewhere around there. And in that, so Limerick City plus 20 kilometres, so probably the majority of the population of Limerick, which I think is about 200,000, there are 34 properties to rent. Oh, see, it gets better. Yeah, I mean, that that's a whole different ballgame. And for only 750 euro, you can get a shed in Lisnagri. <laughs> but a lovely shed. I mean, I've seen worse. <laughs> we will be back on Friday. Hopefully still in our own little home, warm homes, and not looking desperately for somewhere to sleep in Limerick. I think that what, what, what this has taught us is, by God, if you have a home or a rental property, don't lose it. Yeah. We will be back on Friday. Bye-bye. All the best.